This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor at Education Next. Today, the demand for charter schools is greater than ever. Waiting lists are long. Parents say they are very satisfied with the charter school their children are attending. And evaluations show that charters are doing a better job of outperforming the neighborhood district school than ever before, especially when it comes to disadvantaged and minority students. Yet, charter growth is slowing down. Legislative efforts to open new schools are being thwarted. The NAACP says it opposes the formation of new charters, and public enthusiasm for charters has slipped. Why is the opposition to charter schools growing? To consider this question, I have with me today Jason Riley, a member of the editorial board at the Wall Street Journal who has been following the school choice debate for many years. Jason, it is great to have you here with me today. What accounts for this rising tide of opposition to charter schools in 2017? Well, uh, thank you for having me, uh, Professor Peterson. Uh, I think that um, the opposition, the level of opposition, is in, in, in some ways a measure of the success of the charter movement. I think that um, the people in charge of the education status quo see charters as a legitimate threat, um, and they are. Um, again, you, you have to come at this from the right perspective. Um, in other words, I don't think that opposition to charters has a lot to do with whether they work or that they don't work. I think the opposition to charters and choice comes from the fact that they do work then that they will uh, uh, overturn the apple cart. And, 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 and uh, I think that is the reason you see this, um, this opposition and the level of opposition, uh, particularly since uh, uh, President Trump was elected and uh, named as his uh, education secretary a strongly uh, pro-school choice and pro-charter school uh, education Secretary and Betsy DeVos. Yes, I think all that's, uh, that sounds persuasive, but of course, charters are still only 6% of the total. Can they be that much of a threat when they're just 6% six, just 6 of the students attending public well, schools are in charters? The data is so overwhelming in their um, ability to close some of these persistent achievement gaps that we've seen, particularly uh, uh, racial achievement gaps, uh, they're safer schools, and as more people attend them, as more uh, students graduate from them, you're going to get this critical mass of cheerleaders for choice. You've had some very popular films out there like Waiting for Superman and uh, The Lottery and The Cartel and so forth uh, that has exposed uh, to a lot of people uh, what is going on in the public education system, how children have become um, almost a secondary concern uh, when it comes to why certain things are the way they are in our public schools. Uh, the job protections for teachers that have nothing to do with uh, education policy or improving uh, education for kids. Uh, the system is really, as you know, set up uh, as a jobs program for adults first and foremost. And, um, and I think the, the, the country has become more educated uh, about these matters. And, and, and so, yes, the, the, the per percentages are very small, but I think the track record is very good. And, and um, 
and I, I, I certainly think that uh, the traditional public schools and the teachers unions in particular that have a vested interest in opposing these reforms are, are noticing that, that track record, and, and it's spooking them. Well, you know, the uh, slogan has changed, I think. Uh, tell me if this sounds right to you. Uh, in the past, I think charters were criticized for not being any better than the district school or not taking special education students or creaming or things like that. But I don't hear that criticism as often as I hear today the criticism, well, they're taking money away from the public schools. And uh, so that sort of suggests that there's something to what you say, that people are trying to appeal to uh, the public's uh, fear that the money is being taken away from the public schools. Yes, and that's part of an argument that they've made uh, in the past about money being such a key factor in, um, in kids succeeding in school. And we all, we've known for many years that uh, uh, the data just isn't there to support that, that some states that um, spend well below the national average uh, per pupil um, outperform states that and, and, and that spend um, well above the national average per pupil. Uh, but that narrative is, is out there that, that the money is the key factor here. And so it lends credence to this argument that, um, that charter schools are, 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 are taking money away. Um, well, it's, we often have to remind people charter schools are public schools. So <laughs> that you know, one public school would be stealing money from another public school um, is problematic, I think, uh, as an argument. Uh, but we also know the data shows that um, charters spend less money per pupil than uh, the traditional public school counterparts. Um, so the, the argument doesn't, it, it, it's a scare tactic, I think, much more so than um, something with some basis in the, in the, in the evidence. Uh, the argument that I hear ascendant, though, is, is not so much the money argument, it's the segregation argument, that, um, that school choice is leading to uh, more school segregation or perpetuating school segregation. And uh, this, of course, takes you back to the uh, busing debates of the 1970s that um, we need, you know, we, we need to, to, to put desegregation at the top of the list of, of problems with uh, public education. And uh, that leads you down a rabbit hole full of <laughs> all kinds of problems. But I see that argument ascendant. Um, there was a woman recently who um, just awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant for her writings on this uh, a few weeks ago on, um, on, on segregated schools. Well, you know, we do have segregated schools and we haven't done much about it. And uh, the choice system is probably responsible in some way, but the choice system we have is one that says, okay, if you can buy a house in this neighborhood, you can go to this school. So we have this, what I call the residential choice system that's very dependent on the housing market, and the housing market is a very segregated market out there. Sure, but we also know that um, some of the best public schools in this country um, are very segregated. So the idea that uh, black children need to be sitting next to white children to learn is not supported by the evidence. Um, 
And this is not a new phenomenon. There have long been um, mostly black or all black, highly successful schools in this country. And we continue to have them today. In some of the worst neighborhoods, you have these high-performing charter networks setting up a school down the street, whether it's your, your KIPP academies or your uh, Harlem Success Academies, um, and just producing results that are far better than some of the lilius white suburb, suburbs. And, and so um, uh, the idea that this should be the focus, that we should focus on uh, the racial makeup of the school uh, ahead of focusing on whether anyone is learning in the school, I think is, uh, is off the mark. Yet that is the argument out there that is, that is being made. And I think- um, Is that a new form of racism? <laughs> you got to have a white student next to you if you're going to learn something. You you well, can't learn. Well, I, I I I I'm opposed to the uh, ever expanding definition of racism, so <laughs> I, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but it's um, I think it's insulting, um, and I think it's um, uh, uh, takes a lot away from um, what what blacks in particular and poor blacks in particular were able to accomplish in the past. I mean, if you, if you go back to even um, Harlem in, in, the, in the 1940s, uh, the, the, the public schools there were performing at right around uh, the same place that working class neighborhoods on the Lower, lower East Side were. Um, there was some disparity, but it wasn't a huge disparity. Some years, the, the Harlem schools would outperform the working class uh, white communities. In other years, they'd perform a little worse or a little better. But this, you didn't have the gaps that you, that you have today. And again, we were talking about highly segregated school systems back then. So while uh, you know, uh, more racially mixed classrooms might be aesthetically pleasing, the idea that that should be the focus or that you know, under... Under the uh, Obama administration, there were attempts to shut down state voucher programs in places like Louisiana on this basis. Not because the schools weren't working, but because they violated some desegregation order that had been set up in the 1970s. So again, the racial makeup of the classroom was considered more important than whether um, anyone was, was, was advancing academically, and I think that has it exactly backwards. Well, speaking of the Obama administration, it, it, it reminds me that, yes, they did uh, try to uh, br bring the uh, Louisiana scholarship program to an end, but on the whole, they were more supportive of the charter school movement than uh, the Democratic Party seems to be today. Yes. or at least certain elements in it, such as Elizabeth Warren, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, at least. Uh, do you think that uh, part of the strength of the charter school movement over the last several years was due to the fact that quietly the Obama administration was giving support to it through Race to the Top and other policies? There, there may have been some of that going on. Um, and I think you're absolutely right that it was a pro-charter uh, administration. Um, Arnie Duncan, uh, Obama's first education secretary, was very pro-charter as well and, and wasn't afraid to talk about it. Um, I think there might have been something of an understanding that was struck with the unions, which is that we will go no further than this in terms of school choice. We will stop it. At, at, we will be pro-charter, but 
no vouchers, tax, we will oppose all the rest in deference to your concerns. And I think that is the, um, the, the sort of deal that was struck um, with the unions and the Obama administration. I don't think the, the unions were entirely happy <laughs> with this deal, but um, they had enough, uh, they got enough from Obama on other issues that I think they care about to let this one go. Um, but they have, since uh, Obama's left office, really unleashed on, on his successor and, um, and their educational agenda. So there was a lot of pent-up frustration there. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, so what accounts for the uh, intense opposition to Betsy DeVos's nomination? And since she's become secretary, the I mean, you get more student demonstrations against Betsy DeVos than any other member of the Trump administration. Well, well part, part of this is Trump. Trump uh, spillover, I think. He's deeply unpopular, and um, therefore, uh, and it's not just DeVos, any number of his uh, cabinet officials, uh, from Ben Carson to Scott Pruitt, you can go down the list. Um, they've all been uh, tainted by Trump's unpopularity. Um, but with DeVos, you're right, it has been uniquely um, uh, harsh. Um, we've seen nothing like it. And as someone who has studied government for a long time, uh, you know that the education secretary is not exactly the most powerful cabinet post uh, out there. I mean, <laughs> this is <laughs> which makes the, the harshness of this uh, absurd to some degree. And not only is it not one of the um, higher ranking cabinet posts, but um, the federal government um, has a relatively small role to play. Ten uh, percent yeah. of the cash comes and, and so, from the federal government, so ninety percent from yeah, elsewhere. Right. So it's so over the top. But I do think again that for the first time, school reformers have an education secretary who is going to give her full-throated support to to choice in all its forms. That is new. Um, someone who can use their bully pulpit to tell states and localities, the federal government has your back. I want you to go out there and do what you think works, and we're going to support you. And that, again, is something that the, uh, the, the National Education Association, the American Federation of Teachers, and thousands of affiliates uh, have never ha come up against before. They've always, in some sense, been able to keep uh, the person in that, in that cabinet post in check. And they can't do that with, uh, with Betsy DeVos. And I think, again, that frightens them. Not because the reforms that she's pushing for don't work, but because they do work. And I think the unions know they do work. And they don't want, or they want to minimize the amount of other people who know that these reforms work. So I hear an optimistic tone in your voice. You actually think that the, the as we go forward, uh, the choice movement is going to be uh, moving forward as well. I am optimistic. Uh, I, I hope that uh, Secretary DeVos doesn't let the criticism wear her down. I know it can take a toll on people. You have to have a very thick skin. Um, but she's been... She's been fighting this fight for a long time, so I'm, I'm confident that she will, um, uh, will stick it out. Um, but yes, I, I do believe that, uh, that she can play a very, very important role in, 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 in just giving voice to these issues. Uh, she has a, a, a big microphone now. 
Um, she's going to draw big crowds. She's going to draw press attention. And, and people will get to hear what she's saying. And she'll be a real cheerleader um, for these issues. And I think that's what reformers need, first and foremost. Um, and also someone who understands that a, a, uh, a top-down approach to educating kids is not necessarily the best way to go. Uh, someone who, who wants a more modest role for the federal government, um, because this is a big country with a very diverse student body, and what's working in California is not necessarily what's going to work in Texas or in Vermont. I mean, what's working in Northern California might not work in Southern California, for that matter. So you, you need someone who understands that this one-size-fits-all approach hasn't been working and um, has been leaving a lot of children behind, and, and, and she wants to see some other things tried. And, and I think... Um, uh, uh, a lot of Americans will appreciate hearing a, pers a perspective like that. Well, thank you very much, Jason. I've been speaking with Jason Riley, a member of the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Paul Peterson, senior editor at Education Next. This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. We release our podcasts every Monday at noon. Uh, please join me again next week. Thank you. <laughs>